Coming up this hour, we're going to remember Pearl Harbor, our younger siblings, better athletes. And then we'll be joined by Bethany Dearborn Heiser to talk about her book, From Burned Out to Beloved. You're listening to The Common Good. Friends, welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us today on this Monday afternoon. Hope you had a great weekend, and we are glad to have you joining us. Uh, Ian, there's only one way to start today, absolutely only one way. Uh, as the resident Detroit Lions fan, uh, <laughs> you have been, you've got to be feeling pretty good. Are, are you taunting some of your Bears? I mean, the Bears had no. that game won yesterday. No. And your Lions pulled it out. Uh, that that had to feel really good for you yesterday. Resident no, Detroit no, Lions it, fan. It uh, it did not lead to taunting, Brian. When you're a Lions fan, you know better than to taunt. <laughs> we, there's no way we deserved that win. Uh, no. Although I did I did post and then have to retract a statement about how bad they were, and then they won. I was like, oh, never mind. Like oh, I <laughs> pull that back. I uh, all, all I did was at the bottom. I put edit. Never mind. Um, but that's happened a couple of times, actually, where I'll post about how bad they are mid-game, and then they end up winning. I'm like, oh, maybe maybe I need to try the reverse psychology more often. I'm sure that's playing into their success, but not, no, I don't. <laughs> I feel kindred with a lot of Chicago sports fans having grown up in Detroit because this this is just my reality. Yes, I was driving home from a meeting and listening to the game on the radio, and uh, I walked into my house as the Bears were up 10, and then I went and did some stuff, and all of a sudden my son is like, hey, Dad, the Bears are losing with two minutes left. I was like, uh-huh. what? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that did feel like it had more to do with the Bears, but hey, your team your team did take advantage. Uh, my Giants, four in a row, and uh, I realized uh, now that they're they're like might reach the playoffs, even though they're only five and seven right now. My son and I were watching them upset the Seahawks yesterday, and I realized I've created a monster. The uh, game was close, and my son started throwing stuff. Oh, boy. <laughs> I was like, you, you need you to throw stop stuff? that. Are you that kind of sports fan? I get really worked up and, like, nervous and excited. I do not throw things. And so when he threw things, I was like, uh-oh. Mm. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the Giants out of nowhere uh, on a run here, so that was fun. So, uh, yeah, I did. I, I did think of you though when the uh, when the Lions overtook the Bears yesterday, and so hopefully oh, that, that 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 created some sunshine for your day. So, uh, you know, today is December the seventh, and that makes it Pearl Harbor Day. Seventy nine years ago uh, was Pearl Harbor, the attack on Pearl Harbor, uh, and so uh, it, it is. It always reminds me that that things like this, whether it be Pearl Harbor Day or nine eleven or D Day, uh, that a people who experienced it, not nine eleven, but Pearl Harbor and D Day, people who experienced it, there's fewer and fewer people as uh, that generation gets older and older. But it also reminds me of kind of the importance of remembering as a as a culture and as a society. And I guess I wanted to start there because I don't have a lot to say about Pearl Harbor, except that every time it comes on, I'm just reminded, oh, my gosh, some of the people, the people who were in the midst of that are. Uh, what they went through and the bravery they showed is so amazing. Um, but then it does uh, kind of highlight the importance of remem- remembering. So in these holidays or these remembrances, I should say, come along, Ian, Pearl Harbor, D-Day, 9-11. Um, does it cause you to reflect and maybe speak for a minute about the importance of remembering as a culture, but also as individuals? Yeah, it feels like, I mean, I'm going to sound old right now. 
it's it feels like we've conflated acknowledging with remembering if that makes sense like we hmm. things go so fast and i am not i'm not even anti things going fast to be honest but mm-hmm. it does feel like remembering something or someone now as opposed to half a century ago feels yeah. entirely different where we, we give a nod we'll post a photo or a stat online and then we kind of go about our day and i'm not saying you know take a day off of work, you need to commit 12 hours to lighting candles in your basement or anything. I just, it feels like the idea, like if I think even in terms of how, you know, Israel was, uh, they were really commanded to remember in a number of different ways. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There, there is this like sacred sense of, of really sitting in what it is that you're remembering. And I'm not, I don't mean to like relate the, the two, like God's commands to the people of Israel and what we're talking about right now aren't, you know, they're not the same, but there does there does seem to be a real uh, resistance or lack of willingness or I don't know it, it's almost passe to like to simply be still and remember something or to mm-hmm. grieve something or to be present with something and I think that that in a lot of ways you know that's what we've read some people have experienced in this pandemic is a kind of a renewed affection for oh I guess I have a, a forced slowdown like I, I have to be still or you know going into the holidays in the midst of you know quarantine that people saying man i'm I'm really reflecting on how much i actually miss not being around my family and maybe last year i you know took it from granted or i, I wasn't appreciative or whatever that is right. when it comes to remembering i think it's really really important you know i think i mentioned this last time you asked me this question about one of the roles of the holy spirit is to remind us of hmm. the things that jesus has taught us like that's one of the characteristics that jesus gives us is that you're going to need some reminding, you know? So if you were just to do like a Google word search of how many times the word remember shows up in the Bible, I would imagine it's a lot. And that at least gives me some hope. Like, Oh, even then they needed help remembering to remember, like being instructed to remember. So I do appreciate, uh, days like this where it is a, it is a chance to pause and reflect. I just sometimes wonder if we're getting worse at it. I, I think so. And, and, Ironically, we have so much technology in our hands to be able to go access the the footage or whatever else. Right. I would encourage people, as we are always looking forward, as you said, to take some time today to pause and you know go on YouTube and watch you know a, a clip about or the History Channel and just allow yourself to take a couple minutes today uh, to to remember and acknowledge you know remember and and learn more about what did happen seventy nine years ago today on Pearl Harbor. And uh, the other article I wanted to just touch on before we dive into the show here, uh, I found this really interesting because you hear a, a lot of the political spin right now about this next stimulus deal. Will there be another stimulus deal? Will there be relief for people uh, around COVID-19? And, and depending on where you are politically, you probably have different feelings about it, but it could be just a political issue right now. And and I, I just wanted to read this from CNN. It says three stats that show why Americans desperately need federal aid right now. And I wonder if any of these hits you, because when I read these, I was like, wow. Okay, so let me just quickly read these three. Uh, One, the U.S. added half as many jobs last month as expected. We added 245,000 jobs in November, a slowdown from 610,000 jobs added in October. There are 9.8 million fewer jobs than there were before the pandemic began. Number two, unemployment remains stubbornly high for low-wage workers. Uh, it's, it says it's been an uneven recovery so far, so far that low-wage workers' uh, employment rate has fallen 20% since pre-pandemic level. And three, 
small businesses are closing at a higher rate. The number of small businesses open in the United States is down 29% right now from January. And Ian, I just thought that was important right now because politically people want to argue about, oh, the government should do this, should do this. I read that and was just reminded that there's a lot of people really hurting out there right now. And whatever the answer is by Congress or whatever, I do think it's helpful to kind of get the politics out and be reminded at least uh, at this point that there's a lot of people really hurting out there right now. Yeah. Is there any potential pushback? I mean, it is CNN. Like, can you imagine somebody, have you heard the sort of counter argument to those three points? Yeah, it's not the government's job. We want government out of this, that uh, that government just messes things up. So it's not only it's charity's job, it's church's job, but eventually it'll bounce back. Right. Mm-hmm. But uh, and, and I'm not a political scientist. I don't know the best answers and the best solutions. I was just, you know, you hear stimulus and it's just all this debate about politics, politics, politics. You go, oh, my gosh, there are. I was talking to a buddy who's uh, in the restaurant business right now. And the amount of fear and pain right now in just that industry is breathtaking. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think it's helpful. We just talked about remembering it's helpful to go, OK, no, there are actual lives right now who are really struggling. And what can I do to help and how can I help? Uh, so I thought that was a, a, a good way for us to start today. Well, coming up next, Bethany Dearborn Heiser. She's the director of Soul Care for Northwest Family Life uh, and the author of a new book, From Burned Out to Beloved. She's going to join us next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We're really glad to have you joining us today. Uh, and we're thrilled to be joined for the next two segments by Bethany Dearborn Heiser. Bethany is the author of the book, From Burned Out to Beloved. Uh, Bethany, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah, we're really glad to have you on. Why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? Sure, yeah. As you said, uh, my name is Bethany Dearborn Heiser, and I currently work part-time as the director of Soul Care for Northwest Family Life, which is a network of therapists that are specifically trained to work with survivors of domestic violence and trafficking and other traumas. Um, And I get to support those therapists, which is a gift to me because I have also worked um, more on the front lines for many years before that as a domestic violence advocate and jail chaplain, um, as well as an... uh, advocate coming alongside immigration or fa- folks facing immigration um, realities, hmm. mainly farm worker families. Um, and so I, yeah, I now get to support and um, lead workshops on what I call trauma-informed soul care. That's great. That's wonderful. Now you, you wrote a book called From Burned Out to Beloved, and, and Brian and I are both pastors first and he and i don't know anything about burnout but i imagine other people <laughs> maybe have uh, have danced with the burnout could you just give us maybe a thirty thousand foot perspective on the book and then we'll, we'll drill down in some more specifics sure yeah so it's really the integration of what i was seeking um when i so i've experienced burnout myself um largely due to hearing a lot of traumatic um stories and facing a lot of traumatic realities and yet also due to my own unhealth and I, um, I didn't think I, I thought self-care was just things to do and add to your Mm. schedule. Um, I don't know if either of you have done one of those kind of pie charts where you have to categorize your well-being, um, in physical, social, uh, mental, spiritual. Um, and I, but, but when I'd done various workshops that had incorporated those and I'd always left feeling like, okay, it's just more things to do that I'm not doing well. Um, and I 
a friend of mine really encouraged me to take a self-care for social workers class, which was taught by Laura Vandenitlipsky, um, who wrote the book Trauma Stewardship. And that really opened my own eyes to uh, secondary trauma. Mm-hmm. And I started realizing, oh, I'm a lot of what I'm experiencing uh, is connected to my own trauma exposure. And so I began my own uh, journey towards recovery, um, also impacted by a relapse prevention program that we were utilizing in our work um, with people in recovery from substances, but is really applicable to all of us because um, we all have our own addictions, sometimes mm-hmm. just societally endorsed addictions of workaholism and codependency. Right. And so my, I yeah, began kind of doing my own recovery work, um, realizing the layers upon layers of uh, my brokenness and woundedness that were affecting my well-being, mm-hmm. and so my book seeks to integrate what I those those various pieces, um, but is really rooted in our identity as beloved of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, that if we uh, know we are loved, <laughs> not for what we do, but for who we are, it it changes everything. Yeah. Um, otherwise, we're seeking to work out of needing to achieve or to improve or to um, impress. And not just already knowing that we're loved. So, huh. yeah, soul care affects others and affects our work, um, but it's also for our own well-being. Yeah, I'd love to drill down on that term secondary trauma, because once I read about it uh, in, in the description of your book, I'm like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. But I never really heard it before. So could you maybe unpack that word a little bit, that phrase? What is secondary trauma? And maybe how did how did you realize, oh, that's what I'm experiencing? <laughs> sure. So. Secondary trauma um, is sometimes referred to as vicarious trauma. So it's the trauma of being exposed to traumatic realities or hearing secondary um, or hearing stories. So it's primary trauma would be experiencing an, a traumatic event to your own person. Um, and the secondary piece would be hearing about that. Uh, so in trauma stewardship, Laura Vanderlipsky is her name. She outlines 16 most common responses to trauma. Um, Mm. One of those is guilt. And uh, also the sense that you can never do enough. Uh, Mm. And both of those, as well as others that she outlines, were really some experiences that I was, that I resonated with. Um, Mm. Working in a domestic violence shelter and just facing realities around the world, I thought, I don't deserve care. Mm. (laughs) Um, And all the, the false beliefs that were keeping me from taking care of myself. Um, and so, yeah, I'm not sure if that makes sense in terms of that secondary does, trauma. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I remember a story I was just thinking of when you were t- answering that question was I was probably my first or second year of ministry and the pastor at the time, it was a Sunday and someone made some comment like, Hey, you only work one day a week though, right? Like the joke that every, <laughs> every pastor has ever you know, heard every week of his life. Uh-huh. And his, uh-huh. his wife then stepped in and was like, you do not see the sleepless nights, the tears that were cried. Don't you ever talk mm. to my husband like that again? I remember being like 23, being so moved by that, thinking, mm. oh, gosh, I've never seen that model before. And it wasn't until years later that I realized, oh, yeah, there's a lot of secondary trauma in pastoral work and a lot of these kind of you know mm-hmm. high-stress helping professions. I- I'd be curious mm-hmm. why you think pastors, at least in my experience, tend to be pretty poor at providing like soul care, self-care for themselves and giving language and categories for <laughs> you know, what they're experiencing and then actually moving, you know, to a rhythm of, of rest or Sabbath or any of that. Why, why do you think pastors in particular struggle in this area? Yeah, that's a good question. I, 
I'm not a pastor, but as a fellow social worker helping professional, um, I know it's a lot easier for me to help others than receive help. Uh, mm-hmm. It feels good. It feels empowering, right? Um, to take care of other people and to say, oh, that person needs me um, is feels, it gives us a sense of purpose. And we all have a need to make a difference, to have an impact. Um, so it's meeting certain needs that we have in ourselves to contribute and to impact other people. Um, and yet to receive and to turn around and say that I'm not okay or I need help, uh, that puts us in a posture of um, of what we might feel like is weakness. Mm-hmm. And we don't like to be weak. <laughs> right. um, at least, I don't know if you're familiar with, I think you're, you've done podcasts with around the Enneagram. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm, a, I'm an Enneagram too, so I'm a helper. Uh, so I think there's a lot of people who are drawn into the profession because of kind of our personality right. and yet it's really hard to acknowledge our own needs and, and say, Hey, I'm not doing well. I need help mm. as well as the way that we might be seeking to meet our needs through our work, the desire for impact and for success. Mm. Yeah. With like the last minute we have here, Bethany, I'm curious, um, I'm curious if you, um, uh, we all, we hear this in the pastoral world a lot of times. People were feeling burned out, but it's always after somebody quits, right? Like they mm-hmm. they quit, and then we there we hear ah they were burned out. Uh, what what would you see in somebody on the front end that you would say, hey, you're burning out. You need you need to watch out right now. How would somebody? What would some of those warning signs be? Yeah, I think pace of life and um, inability to turn off or to put aside work. So when I hear that people. Um, and I see people responding to email at all hours or, mm-hmm. um, and not having a day off, um, not being able to disconnect. I would say that's a sign of um, oncoming burnout, that we need to be able to say this work is, is not just up to me. Um, we need to be able to step back and to, to hand off to others and to say that God actually works outside of us. Um, and we get to partner with God, but it is not all up to us. Bethany. Uh, thanks again for staying with us. Uh, I'm wondering, do you, uh, this time of the pandemic, this time of COVID, uh, are you just seeing burnout and trauma and stress kind of going through the roof? What are you seeing right now during this pandemic time? Yes, I, I keep hearing stories and just obviously the helping prof- the medical professionals that are on the front lines. Um, I can only imagine that there is significant levels of burnout. Um, both the traumatic stories as well as the intense work um, hours. I have a friend who's a nurse and who is normally working with people um, with women who are pregnant and parenting. And she was called in to, as a public health nurse to um, the, some of the retirement facilities as well as doing COVID testing. And so just, it's pushing people um, in the field, but also those of us who are not necessarily working directly with patients um, the levels of disconnect and isolation, uh, we are wired for connection, mm. right? And so mm-hmm. I think um, the the isolation and even as I said in the first part, just talking about how we need to ask for help, we need each other. And that's a huge part of recovery. A recovery lens um, is asking for help and is building a support network. And so I think the the levels of disconnect um, is, is also increasing our own our own burnout and our own um, isolation. And my, my guess is that there's probably a number of people listening right now who are raising a hand metaphorically or physically saying I'm, I'm burned out or I'm nearing it or somebody near me has said, Hey, you're heading in this direction. 
Could you take it just a couple of minutes and maybe give some practical next steps? Like, obviously, we want people to go and buy the book. So don't, yeah, don't give us the whole thing. <laughs> but what, what next steps might you recommend someone who's saying, I'm either, I'm either totally in a spiral or I'm definitely burnout or I'm, I'm nearing burnout and I, I want to be able to back away from the cliff. Like, what, what would you say to them? Yeah, I mean, one thing is you are not alone. Um, mm-hmm. I think we can feel even isolated in our un, um, unhealth and in our pain. And so, and we can blame ourselves. I mean, that's a, a strange aspect of burnout is that it's often we think that we're weak for not being able to handle it, whatever it is. Right. And so um, just to say you're not alone, <laughs> that uh, I think that's what the trauma stewardship book and class did for me was, hey, it connected all these things and said, oh, what am I experiencing is actually connected to the traumatic realities that we didn't even mention, obviously, all the other um, traumatic stories of for people of color this year um, and how that leads to secondary trauma. And so I, um, I just the collective nature of um, of trauma this year has just knowing that knowing that I think has helped me is to know that I'm not alone. I think next is also um, to ask for help, as I mentioned before, whether that's a therapist or a spiritual director or just telling talking to a friend um, but to, to seek companion in your journey. Hmm. Um, and then the, the third, maybe I would echo there's the importance of integrating um, a daily practice and to sometimes we can think that there's, we don't have time for it, that there's always more to do. That's how I was. I can't stop hmm. for five minutes. And yet actually even still I'm needing to practice this brain and even that when I take, if I can have five minutes, I have two little daughters too. And so <laughs> five minutes doesn't, um, it's precious time. But if I can take five minutes of quiet um, to ground myself and to remind myself that I am beloved, that I'm cared for, that I'm held, um, that I face what comes at me after that, whatever it is, um, in a different way. And so just practicing care in very small, tangible ways. Yeah. And you talk about embracing your identity as a beloved child of God. Can you talk about why that is so important? And maybe uh, for people out there going, how do I do that? Maybe give them some tips. How do we uh, increase our ability to embrace our identity as a beloved child of God? Yeah, that's such a good question. I Again, I think of the posture of receiving. Um, we don't need to strive to, to be beloved. We already are. Um, and so part of a daily practice of, of slowing down um, puts us in that posture of receiving and says it's not all up to us. And I'm loved not for what I do. I'm able to let go and to lay down whatever tasks are at hand um, because my identity is not what I do, uh, that I already am beloved. Even if I fail or if people reject me or if they think whatever about me, that I am loved by God. And so that just it changes how we approach our work and our and our life um, mm. that I'm, yeah, as a parent, <laughs> um, whatever profession, whatever caregiving, whatever place we are in, that um, we need to know and live out of that place. I mean, you, you asked about pastors in the beginning. And um, what if every pastor truly knew deep down and lived out of that place of knowing that they were deeply beloved by God, hmm. um, that it, it, it shifts our focus and it, it grounds us in a way that we're actually able to be present, more present to those that we are working with. Mm-hmm. Seeing as an Enneagram three, I really appreciate phrases like <laughs> your identity isn't found just in what you do, 
But I also know that that can be really hard to, to know. Like when I look at my own life, there are probably massive seasons where I was fully entrenched in burnout, not listening to the voices of the people around me. I, I'd be I'd be curious to know why or how you speak to someone who maybe maybe they don't have any metrics for even deciphering their burnout. Like someone who's identified, oh yeah, I, I think I'm burnt, I'm, I'm burning out. Would see your book and say, "That's a resource I need. That's someone I need to reach out to, or that's mm-hmm. that's something I need to engage with." What do you say to the person who might be burning out but doesn't have any of the tools or resources to even identify it in themselves? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I tried to write my book for for people who wouldn't normally pick up a self care book, mm-hmm. such as myself. Um, and yet, obviously, the title is from burned out to beloved, so it is geared for people who are already aware of that. Um, yeah, I think just the. I think we can all recognize there's a level of exhaustion, and so maybe for somebody who is um, just oh, starting to become aware of their own tiredness and exhaustion, um, that they might start to see that there is more to life. Um, there's a more there's a different way of being, even in the midst of still so much to do, but just a, a turning. So I, um, I would hope that someone who doesn't think that they need it, um, there, I talk about the stages of change in my book and they're in a pre-contemplative stage of change. <laughs> they're not even thinking that they need it yet. And so sometimes, unfortunately it takes, um, some levels of pain and discomfort to move us towards more of a contemplative, um, stage of change. Mm-hmm. Again, you've been listening to Bethany Dearborn-Heiser, her new book, From Burned Out to Beloved. Uh, Bethany, we're, again, grateful for you joining us. Where can people find out more? Where can they find your book? Maybe social media? Where can they hear more uh, of what you're writing? Just give all, give it all to our people out there. Yeah, my website is Bethany Dearborn-Heiser, and that's the best way to find find it all, I guess. Um, I'm also on Twitter and Instagram, and Bethany D. Heiser, and I... Um, I'm going to be leading a couple events this this month, and I'd love for folks to join who are thinking about it, who might have been their interest peaked. But one is just um, a year-end mini retreat, January 3rd. Uh, that will be a, just a couple hours and a way of kind of slowing down and exploring some of those false narratives that we might have um, in a contemplative way. And then also just Advent Lexio Divina. So Lexio Divina has been a very life-giving practice for me of slowing down and listening with the heart as as often described. Hmm. So people are welcome to join me in that. Well, that's great. Again, the book is From Burned Out to Beloved. We'd encourage you to pick it up uh, either at ivppress.com or on Amazon. Bethany, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank, thank you, you for having me. It's been great to be here. Our pleasure. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Really thankful for you for joining us today. Uh, Ian, before we jump into this article about younger siblings, uh, apropos of nothing, the Fromms put up their Christmas tree this week. I am in this weekend. I'm in full Christmas mode right now. You and I talked last week that I was kind of holding back. Oh, we decorated the house and stuff, and we watched not one but two Christmas movies this weekend. So uh, you're going to need to put up with me. I'm in full Christmas mode, Elf and a Christmas Story, uh, all in one weekend. So no way do I watch The Grinch last night, two, three movies this weekend. So what's to put up with? I'm not a Scrooge here. There's nothing to nothing to put up with. I'm I'm glad to hear that. So I'm I'm ready for the Christmas carols. I'm ready for the cookies, presents under the tree. I'm I'm in now. I'm in now that we're past Thanksgiving. Why did you Why did you wait so uh, long? 
uh, stubbornness. No, I have, uh, I'm, a, I'm a believer that, that you shouldn't do Christmas stuff before our Thanksgiving is over. So you've got to get past right. Thanksgiving first. So Yeah, that was a while uh, ago. Yep. That was a week. Then, you know, you got to get the stuff out of the crawl space, kind of wait for the weekend. It's all that kind of stuff. But uh, no, I'm good. Are you a fake tree or real tree? I've never asked you this. What do you guys have up in your house? Well, I do. I think in a in a perfect scenario would be real tree, but we're we're fake tree right now. I would answer that question for us exactly the way you just answered that. Yeah. <laughs> that I am partial to the real tree and what someone gave us a fake tree about three or four years ago. And it's like, oh, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> I literally in a sermon one year talked down to people who had uh, who had fake trees. <laughs> and then the next year, somebody gave us one, not because they were in that sermon, but just happened to give us one. And I went up and I apologized the next week to the, to the church. I apologize. Now nice. I get it. So Nicely done. Uh, anyway, at 538.com, which is a bit of a fascinating uh, website, they write this. Uh, his name is Tim Wigmore. He wrote an article entitled, Why Are Great Athletes more likely to be younger siblings. I have never thought about this. And when I read it, I found it really fascinating. Why don't you get us into this article? Oh, I've only thought about this as the eldest <laughs> of seven children. Uh, oh, yes. And, and not that great an athlete with some siblings who are phenomenal athletes still to this day, by the way. Uh, it's super frustrating. And I at least now feel like I have <laughs> some justification, maybe. And I just, You're going to hand this article out to them. <laughs> Here you go. Guys, science, I can't help it. Uh, it starts by saying Venus Williams was the first of the Williams sisters to make a splash in professional tennis. But Richard Williams, their father, was always convinced that Serena, 15 months younger than Venus and the youngest of, oh boy, how do you even say that name? Oracine? I think that's what it is. Oracine Price. Oracine yep. Price's five daughters would go on to have the better career. Richard Williams was right. While Venus has enjoyed a magnificent career winning seven Grand Slams. Seven? I didn't know that. Serena has won 23 Grand Slams and is widely acclaimed as the best female tennis player, maybe the best tennis player of any gender of all time. What was true of the Williams sisters that the younger one went on to be the better athlete is also true across sports generally. This is the, quote, little sibling effect, one of the most intriguing <laughs> findings in sports science. Younger siblings have a significantly higher chance of becoming elite athletes as University of Utah professor Mark Williams and I explore in our new book, The Best, How Elite Athletes Are Made. So obviously we're going to get into the weeds here a little bit, but you were saying before the break that you found this article really fascinating. I'm, I'm curious as to why. Yeah, a couple different reasons. One, I'm the younger of two siblings, so I'm going to send this to my brother once the show is over. <laughs> but two, <Perfect. laughs> uh, but two, um, I, I found it really interesting what we're about to get into as to why this is the case, because mm -hmm. I see this in the way we parented our own children. I have three children. Uh, and one of the things they're going to get into here is that parents are a lot more careful in generally speaking with their first children and they don't let them just explore and, mm -hmm. and you know, kind of. Uh, learn on their own, whereas by your third, fourth, set, whatever kid, you're kind of like, hey, I don't have the energy, <laughs> like, or right. you've learned your lessons with the first one. And so that becomes one and two younger siblings playing with their older siblings. I think something kind of grows in them that maybe the older towards the younger doesn't get this kind of, I got to stand up for myself, a kind of a toughness that might come out. So uh, I did find this really interesting because once they talk about it, you're like, yeah, that does make sense, but I've mm. never really uh, given it much thought. So I, I do tend to agree with you. I wonder if there is certainly like I think about this isn't this doesn't really have much to do with athleticism, but like my younger brothers were so much more comfortable behind the wheel earlier than I was 
And really? They told me years later it was because like, oh, well, we saw you make all the mistakes. Like we saw you kind of, you know what I mean? Like you were the first. <laughs> my, again, I, I learned on like a 15 passenger van because there was a million of us. So I was like driving a <laughs> shuttle bus, which is terrifying. It's so scary. But that guy, I, I, I remember that. I hate later, driving those now. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. That was, I will tell you this though. When you learn to drive one of those when you're 15, everything else seems like a piece of cake. When you get into like a, like a Ford Fiesta, you're like, <laughs> This is a breeze. There's only three feet here. Like it was, you know, it was way easier. But they did tell me years later, they're like watching you kind of go through it made it less like nebulous, less scary and and distant. And I wonder if in the sports world, again, I played like a little bit of soccer, but I I was I just wasn't very good. So so maybe I'm talking myself out of my own reasoning because, you know, I, I didn't like moder. I didn't model good athleticism for my younger brothers for them to like take one step further like this story kind of begins with the Williamses. They just sort of saw me not be that good. But I did like a little bit of karate and a little bit of fencing. So I was, you know, athletic-ish. But what what of this uh, idea do you find most fascinating in the article? Uh, I, I do find it fascinating about about how we as parents treat our our kids differently <laughs> when they're younger, I think. And I this was absolutely true for me. So there might be some parents out there going, no, nah, that wasn't how we were. I just know this helps. And they're right about it in here. But this describes how we were like I I jokingly say that our first child, Madeline, uh, there were points when she was little that she might as well have been in bubble wrap <laughs> the mm-hmm. way that I was like, did you fall? Did you hurt yourself? Did you this? Did you? And by the time our third, you know. Uh, Emily came along. You just didn't have the 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 time. You know, you had that. Now you had three kids running around, and you learned your lessons with some of the first ones. That you're like, okay, a skin knee is not the end of the world, right? right. Or falling's not the end of the world. And so I do think she was probably got a bit of a different message from us uh, hmm. than than say uh, her older sister did. And then on top of that, I do think uh, we've watched our youngest uh, with her personality have to like kind of. Uh, especially at an early age, kind of, you know, I mean, fight in the best of ways, but like fight to kind of keep up mm-hmm. with her older siblings just mm-hmm. as the younger one. And I do think that that kind of carries on into the athletic field a little bit. And uh, now there's older siblings who were the best athletes. Uh, two of our greatest athletes currently are are only children. And that's all probably for a whole different reason. LeBron James and Tiger Woods are both only children. Um, and so uh, there's probably reasons for that. But yeah, I do think... I think this has more to do with parenting, I'll put it this way, than it does with being a younger sibling. I think it, mm. it speaks much more to how we treat uh, the oldest versus the youngest. I'd be interested to know your parents someday, having had seven. I wonder how they treated you versus the seventh, right? Like, it had to have been different. They just dropped us off in a different house entirely. They're like, that's the luck. <laughs> no, 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 no. no I, I should even say that. My parents are so hands-on. They homeschooled all of us. I've mentioned that before on the show. Like, I know. Incredibly yes. engaged. Now being a father of two, I'm like, how in the world did you parent seven? So like my my uh, my dad's pretty athletic. My, actually, both my parents were pretty athletic. My mom more in skiing, which was never something that we did. But my dad, you know, baseball, he always had like a like a boxing bag in the uh, in the basement. So there's certainly oh, really? like physics. But even like one of the things they mentioned here is that, you know, firstborns and only children have to wait for their parents to play, where for younger siblings, they like have a built in yes. play buddy at all times. So like my Second eldest, Redman, and maybe this is just this is a little nature nurture. He's just way more physical, both in like mm-hmm. aggression, like running into stuff and throwing stuff, <laughs> but also affection. Like he just always wants to like cuddle and hug. Like there's he, the physicality that's like already really obvious with him, and he's not even two yet, is really fascinating to me. And I, I wonder if some of that's at play too. 
Yeah, so go find this article from 538. We put it up on our Facebook page. I really did find it fascinating, uh, I think, because I resonated with a lot of my own parenting in it. And so would love for you to read it. Let us know where you think it's right, where it's wrong. You can find that at our Facebook page. Uh, coming up next, we are going to talk. Uh, yeah, we're going to get into the pandemic, particularly this uh, blog post, Confessions of a Pandemic Risk Taker. We're going to discuss that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about pandemic risk-taking, celebrity Christians, and what was the most read Bible verse of 2020? You're listening to The Common Good. Hey friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us on this Monday afternoon. All right, Ian, at, uh, at Medium, so a guy by the name of Will Leach. Uh, he wrote this the other day, and, and I saw this getting passed around a little bit. Some people like, yes, this is the description of me, and some people taking a bit of a different take. So hmm. wanted to jump into it. It's called this, Confessions of a Pandemic Risk Taker. And Subhada said, well, not that risky, but riskier than I'll admit on social media. So hmm. uh, let's jump into this. And I'm wondering, uh, yeah, let's see where we go with this. It says, Remember the early days of the pandemic here in the U.S.? It was terrifying. But there was also a sense of purpose in the early going, a sense that this was something we should we could maybe get through together. This was before Liberate Michigan uh, and idiots seeing a mask as an infringement on their personal liberty. This was back in the days of flatten the curve and ringing bells and shouting out the window for healthcare workers. And we're all in this together. Uh, and he goes on to say the pandemic has gone on too long for all that. And we are too impatient of a people. I think all told, he says, if I were a single version of me sitting in an apartment by myself, I would have been perfectly content, uh, if not necessarily satisfied to stay indoors and do something, do nothing for eight months. I would have finally caught up on all those shows that I never watched, might have at last gotten to work on that book I've been putting off for years, maybe had a regular Zoom cocktail with all good friends. I'd have I'd have been good at that. Uh, he says my whole generation would be good at that, though. I'm sure I'm kidding myself. It'd just be hard in a whole different way. The situation's here. I now have a family, including two children. It occurred to me probably around May or so as I watched them struggle with the oxymoron that is elementary school virtual learning that while we were inside waiting for the pandemic to be over time outside our house was continuing to tick by hmm. what was a difficult but temporary disruption. Uh, uh, was starting to grow into a significant part of my boy's childhood. Children are constantly changing. And my wife and I began to notice the pandemic itself changing them. They were becoming more cautious, less heedless, more inward after only a couple of months. So we began, like millions of others, to loosen. Like many of you, our early pandemic routines, leaving packages outside, wiping down every inch of the house, never touching <laughs> our face, fell by the wayside as the months went along. We started to sniff around what other with other parents about quarantining so we could have playdates, having drinks with friends on the front porch or in the backyard, even outdoor dining at restaurants. We felt like we were still being cautious and careful and sensible. And then we would look around and realize that much of the rest of the world, as quarantine fatigued as we were, had thrown even more caution to the wind, which led, as everything in 2020 always does, to more fighting. 
Now it feels like whatever decision you make is either too cautious or not cautious enough. It feels like everyone's waiting to shame you for doing something differently than what they do. Going to pause right there. Uh, A, does this kind of do you feel like this is kind of how you've been kind of going around? Kind We've talked about pandemic fatigue, kind of trying to open up a little more, just getting back to a little bit more normal. Uh, But I really want to weigh in onto that last line about shaming uh, for doing differently than what they would do. So why don't you take first? Is this a description of your life at all? I don't know that it's a description of my life. I do find it interesting that He's like, well, I don't want to share how risky I am being on social media, so I'll write a blog about it. <laughs> like, oh, there's people, truth. people are going to know now, man. Um, I, I mean, I literally just got an email yesterday or the day before from someone who attends our church. And they're like, I got I to gotta ask you a question because I, I've been shamed for wearing a mask saying, you know, people have said things like you don't have enough faith or, mm-hmm. you know, as Christians where we have special protections or, you know, is that true? Am I, am I missing something? Am I? Is that a lack of faith if I'm in any way feeling anxious or cautious? Like that's a very real conversation that I'm having with with people a lot of the time. It is – I have thought about this a lot. So my kids are three and almost two. So there certainly is some behavioral stuff that I've seen different in them over this last year. But they don't yet quite have the language that like a six or a nine-year-old like this author is saying, like where they can, you know, much more like the age of your kids can really let you in on – how they're feeling or how this is different from what they had hoped or the people they're missing or how it's affecting even their, their mental health. You know, your, your kids ages have, you know, a lot more categories and handles around That's right. communicating what's going on. So it's, it's tough, especially for my youngest who we just, you know, my wife and I were having this conversation the other day, like, does he just seem more like aggressive? You know, like there was, mm. so what people often don't see is like the reason we were going for walks every day was just to like help them get some energy out. And there'd be a couple of people that would kind of turn their nose up like, oh, you're not taking this seriously. You're like, we're going on a nature trail. OK, we're away from everybody. <laughs> like we're we're, we're I, I, I got kids in a you know 14 square foot house yeah. that are like bouncing off the walls. So what I'm <laughs> what I'm realizing, a lot of people don't necessarily know the backstory behind why people are or aren't doing certain things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find that that's always clarifying that we could you could apply that to any circumstance but uh, yeah i don't i don't necessarily know that uh, will and i have identical lives but i've certainly have seen right. the shame go both ways that's for sure and i i find the shaming portion of it interesting uh if not disturbing because i i feel like there's more at least this is anecdotal this is me looking at my own people in my life and my own facebook feeds right like but i feel like there's a greater level of shaming and a greater level and in my and it's kind of from both sides. It's people who don't wear masks shaming those that do and vice versa. And I'm, I do you think that's just from the emotion of all of this and everyone kind of at wit's end a little bit? Is that where this is coming from or is it just turned political? Why do you think there's this propensity right now to kind of shame one another for however it is you're attacking this pandemic? Well, we've talked about this before. There's been other articles that we've referenced that, you know, talk about um the West becoming a more honor shame culture. And I think the the pandemic has certainly exacerbated that. I think people do perceive it as a legitimately uh, effective means of changing someone's mind or behavior. I really do think a lot of people think that Um, we are talking about a virus, right? Something that is dangerous, but people are divided on. So I don't think it's just politicizing. I don't think it is just, partisan bickering. I I think people 
really at their core, at least most that I talk to on every side of this discussion, want what's best. That's what I, ha- yeah. I got to keep in mind. Like people that are really, really pushing for less restrictions aren't are not looking to like put all their loved ones in the greatest risk of harm ever and want to see half their neighborhood wiped out. That's not their motive. They recognize that there's, there are some psychosocial detriments to staying, you know, locked in a house for a long time. The other side uh, are not just a a bunch of frightful wimps like, Oh, Oh, you're, Oh, you believe that scientist or that data or this, Oh, you're a, you're a sheep. You're being duped. Like it's, they're also wanting to protect and be mindful of the people they care about the most. And, um, I think remembering that at the very least, I guess, is is something I, I think is helpful when you're tempted to maybe want to throw shade at someone who behaves differently than you do. But it all, of course, gets elevated because it's not just a matter of like, I like punk. I like metal. Well, we can agree to disagree. Right. Like there's very real implications on both sides of it. And I think that's probably what's making everything so heated. And I think something I know you have felt and I, I, I won't speak for you. I know something I have felt increasingly as a pastor is get, getting wound up into all of this conversation is also I disagree with you about masks. So I'm leaving your church. Like, really? Oh, yeah. We're going to go down yeah, yeah. that road. For and sure. people who are like, that can't be happening. I promise you that's happening. Yeah, and, uh, and that's where it becomes still wild. So I'd encourage you to read this uh this post, it's by Will Leach. I just looked this up. Will Leach is actually the founder of Deadspin and a writer at uh, New York Times and other places. So uh, look this up at our Facebook page, The Common Good Talk. Uh, well, coming up next, we are uh, going to talk about our old friend, David French. He took on the crisis of the Christian celebrity. Coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Uh, Ian, I want to jump into this long article here. David French, who we were, uh, we have read his stuff for months from the French press that he writes his own blog. And we were, uh, one of the highlights for us was having him on about a month ago. Have David yeah. French on was a great highlight for us. Uh, I was ready to be done with the Carl Lent story and the Christian celebrity story. Uh, mm-hmm. You were just telling me off air, hey, the New York Times just did an article about Carl Lentz that will make your blood boil. Yeah, uh, yeah. For those who don't know, Carl Lentz, a uh, well-known celebrity pastor at Hillsong, New York, uh, who has found uh, lost his job recently for an ongoing affair. It's kind of come out in the last week or so that this was not the first of these. And now some stuff about the culture of that church is coming out, all stuff that kind of makes your blood boil. And I think you and I have kind of covered it. And spoken about how angry this makes us. But when David French tackles it, you got to go back to it. So David yeah. French at the French po- at the French press this weekend uh, wrote this. And it's really long. Ian's going to get us into it. But it's really long and worth the read. Uh, the crisis of Christian celebrity. The heart is deceitful above all things. Why don't you get us into this? Yeah, here's how he starts. He says, it's happened again. A prominent Christian leader has fallen from grace. Allegations of impropriety and pour, are, are pouring out into public, and a church is facing a crisis of faith and confidence. This time, it's Carl Lentz, friend of Justin Bieber and Kevin Durant, and former lead pastor of Hillsong East Coast. Yes, I know this is old news. Brian Houston, Hillsong's founder, fired Lentz on November 4th. Later that day, Lentz confessed to marital infidelity, and soon afterward, uh, his paramour came forward, including on Good Morning America. I did not know that. To describe her months-long affair, his song has since launched an independent investigation into the, quote, inner workings of the church. And yesterday, the New York Times published a comprehensive report on the scandal written by uh, Ruth Graham, 
one of the nation's best religion reporters. The report includes new allegations that Lentz may have had more than one affair and new disturbing claims about Lentz's focus on celebrity ministry and the church's emphasis on appearance. I won't read the passage here, but I, you know, you already mentioned it, Brian, the VIP kind of nature of the church uh, is what is a word that's safe for radio infuriating re just as this should, I mean, this should, I don't want to say should, I imagine this probably makes a lot of people mad. I did. I do want people to know um, for pastors, it's a particular kind of pain. I really think that's true. There's a certain level of like grief and anger uh, when it's someone who you share a profession with, that's supposed to be about, guarding, shepherding, protecting, leading, serving people, yeah, you know? Exactly. I mean, yeah, I'll get emotional talking about that. Let me just keep reading. Um, Hillsong has long been controversial in evangelical circles. It's known for its extraordinarily popular worship music. Uh, he says, I love Hillsong music and have shared their work many times in this newsletter and for its uplifting hipster secret sensitive approach. But it would be a profound mistake to quickly connect Lentz's sin to his church's less orthodox style. In recent months and years, it seems as if every single major branch of evangelical Christianity has watched a famous leader fall. That is unfortunately true. Are straight-laced fundamentalist homeschoolers immune from scandal? I feel attacked. Not at all. <laughs> Bill Gothard, a man who could once fill arenas with followers, faced dozens of allegations of sexual misconduct and was ultimately forced out of the ministry he founded. And Gothard is hardly the only fundamentalist leader to quit his ministry in shame. What about Rock Rib Southern Baptist? We're uh, mere months removed from Jerry Falwell Jr.'s departure from Liberty University as a cloud of sexual scandal. Okay, but what about intellectual Christian apologists? A longtime reader of the Sunday French Press may remember that I paid tribute to Ravi Zacharias last May. He died after a brief battle with cancer. Zacharias uh, made the case for Christianity in elite academics, uh, in elite academies across the world. He inspired a generation of Christian college students, but he also uh, apparently co-owned a number of day spas. Uh, You know, we've covered that story before where Mm -hmm. allegedly a number of things um, went on there. Uh, he says it's tempting to simply cite Reinhold Neubauer's uh, famous maxim that the doctrine of original sin is, quote, the only empirically verifiable doctrine of the Christian faith. Note that every class of a person is susceptible and vulnerable to sin and move on. Celebrities are human and we know that human beings are fallen and thus there will always be spectacular falls from grace. Yes, but must they be so frequent? Must they be so <laughs> constant? Is there something about celebrity itself that makes the fall more likely after all? In many of these folks, it's quite apparent that something has changed. Very few people embrace a life of public ministry as a part of a plan for sexual conquest. They begin with a sincere desire to preach and teach and transform lives, but they also don't know who they truly are. They're untested. They're Mm -hmm. untried. That makes me think, Brian, do you remember when I know you do remember? Remember when we interviewed Rick Warren and he made a comment in that interview, not to like name drop. That was gross. Uh, <laughs> it was a year ago. I think this week. Yeah. Was yeah. it? Okay. Yeah. Maybe that's why I'm thinking of it. Cause it showed up in my memories, but he, he made a comment like, um, your mentor should be alive, but your model should be dead. I remember that. Do you no, remember that, that phrase? Was, yeah. Cause you don't know. Cause you never know how someone's story is actually going to end until it ends. And I thought there was a lot of wisdom in that mentor should be alive, but model should be dead. And who knew just a year later, we would have a a number of case studies to that exact point that he was making. Absolutely. Uh, That's a powerful line here from David French. I like that you paused here because when I read this, this is the one I underlined, right? They don't know who they truly are. They're untested. They're untried. I think for me, all of this, and and it's uh, it makes me angry at kind of the culture we have, but it also makes me have to ask myself a lot of hard questions. I think we got to, you know, we have to have that sort of humility here. 
that that to look at um to, to ask the question what's going on I, and and it's easy to put it under the 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 umbrella of celebrity but i think what it often is is uh people with great preaching skills or very charismatic uh who aren't willing to be under authority uh i think that's where these things start to come out and people given too much too soon i think david french is 100% right you don't get into the pastorate i i don't think to make a ton of money and to have a bunch of affairs <laughs> like right. there's there's better ways to go about it i would suggest if that's what you're looking for and so he asks the right question because I do think, and I don't think it's because we have a show, so you and I are seeing it more and more. It does feel like it's happening more and more and more and more. And I do think we have to ask the hard questions of why. Well, I think it's a bit of a reckoning, to be honest. Like, I think the reason that it's happening more and more, I hope, is beginning to at least, I don't know, this this will sound a little Old Testament, strike some fear into the hearts of people that would think that they're untouchable, that they can't. Because I think that's a part of what it comes from. It is a sense of feeling untouchable. And that can that can come from a big church or a small church or a big organization or a small organization. That I don't I don't really know that that's necessarily the, the case. I do think, like in the case of Lentz, and we've talked about this off air, so let's, let's bring it on air. Why not? I think let's part of it. what some people had uh, asserted was that when you're that, prominent when you're that big you can become almost addicted to sort of like the applause and response of a crowd and when you're in a pandemic you're not right. getting that you know you're not experiencing the real-time like dopamine so you know some people have wondered like maybe, maybe he just allowed himself to get bored like he was so addicted to that thrill that when that wasn't there he went seeking another thrill that's not a excuse at all i've already mentioned this makes my blood boil but yep. it it is interesting that i think there there is a a testing. I think that's the right word. He talks about they're just untested. They're un they're untried. Um I've I heard a friend, he was talking we were talking about a mutual friend who, you know, no major failing, but kind of like knew him when and he's he's kind of become, you know, uh just a very different kind of person. And he said, Yeah, his platform grew faster than his character. And I thought, mm, wow, that's a great insight. Powerful. His platform grew faster than his character. Your character can't and we've met people who I, I think have platforms that most of us would probably you know at least in our earthly sense be pretty impressed by who do also seem to be incredibly rooted like very grounded so i'm not anti-platform but i do think yeah when your platform goes faster than your character that's just a recipe for disaster Uh, that's that's a powerful way to put it french later on goes on to say this i've known a number of christian public figures who haven't fallen who lived decades in the public eye and lived with integrity uh, and that while I've, they've come from different backgrounds, they've typically shared two common convictions. He says, first, they don't trust their virtue. And second, they don't believe they've earned their fame. Uh, mm. And like you just said, there, you and I have had the uh, pleasure of meeting and talking to a lot of people who are very famous, and yet they fall under this category. They don't trust their virtue. They don't believe they've earned their fame uh, versus others who have fallen. So this article as always with David French, I can't uh, encourage you enough to go read it at our Facebook page, uh, The Common Good uh, Radio Show. You ne- Coming up next, we're going to talk about somebody we haven't, have we talked about Matthew McConaughey ever here on the station, on the, on the show? I'm not sure, but we're going to talk about him next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Hope you're having a great Monday. Uh, and a good week ahead of you. All right, Ian, I'm, I've been ready. I've been ready for today thinking, what are the holidays? What can I celebrate with my kids today? 
what is going on? And thankfully, I knew that I was going to talk to you and you were going to tell me the holidays of the day. So what are our holidays today? What do you do to get ready when you say that you're ready? Is there a preparation process for this part of the show I, that you have to go through? I think about what, what cards I need to go. Do I need to go get a cake later today? Mm-hmm. Does this require, uh, you know, decorating? There's all sorts of things. What, like you tell me this and it kind of orders what has to happen in my evening a little bit. Well, I'm I'm now starting to really doubt the uh, the categorization <laughs> of this website here because it put National Pearl Harbor Remembrance Day under the weird category. Oh, I was like, yeah, no, that, that, that's that a is miss. not that is a real miss. Why would they? I don't understand. Um, there's a couple of other things that are legitimate, but let's get to the fun ones. It's National Illinois Day. Oh, our state made it. Uh, <laughs> you got Pay big more plans. taxes today. Got big Pay plans. For national, yeah, right. That's that's how you can <laughs> celebrate. You can send that card right to the IRS. Um, <laughs> it's also National Cotton Candy Day. Oh, well, let's pause. Thoughts on cotton candy? Um, no. Here's so the thing, Brian. I don't think about cotton candy because I'm a I'm a grown man, Brian. That's why. If somebody were handing you some Ooh. cotton candy and your kids weren't there, so you can't hand it to your kids, and they said, "Hey, you want some of this cotton candy?" Would you politely decline, or would you be really excited? Yes, let me eat that. I mean, probably neither. I'd probably reluctantly <laughs> accept. Like, okay, this might as well happen. It is a so. weird thing. Cotton candy is just a weird thing. Also, what scenario are you painting here where my kids aren't around and someone's ra- randomly handing out like poofs of cotton candy? Wait, don't you ever fly solo at a carnival? No. <laughs> oh, boy. You are. You grow more and more suspicious with every show, Brian. It's a Monday. Government uh, is listening. For sure. Like, yeah, this yeah, guy. Let's yeah. tap his phone. Uh, okay. Cotton candy day. That's it. Oh, those are the only two. You didn't answer how you would respond to cotton candy. I would take it. I actually don't enjoy cotton candy very much because it's so weird. It's so sweet. Like I find it to be too sweet. So yeah, it's pure Um, sugar, Brian. That it would, that would be the answer to that question. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just such a weird texture, but anyway, yeah, no. Uh, but I would just go on and enjoy that carnival alone. <laughs> Again, please stop. Where are we going saying, with this? this is, we don't put me in this. You're the one that keeps We're saying. We're a team. We're a team. Not in this or not. No way. We're taking your name off of the logo. <laughs> okay. So happy Illinois Day. And uh, yeah, it's a good, good dark Monday for Illinois Day. Uh, all right. I found this article. Here's Let's delve into just a little bit of politics. But I think this... When I read this, I kind of thought about what you and I are trying to accomplish a little bit here at the show. So uh, let me paint the picture here and then we'll dive into it. Matthew McConaughey, uh, you know, well-known actor. What's your favorite Matthew McConaughey movie? Go. Which which one? I don't I don't even know. I mean, I've not seen that many, to be honest. Let me let me look up a list while you talk. I like the time to was the time to kill Grisham. Yeah, he was good in that. Uh, so anyway, this has nothing to do with that. But Matthew McConaughey went on uh, the Russell Brand podcast. British comedian Russell Brand had a podcast. Interstellar. Interviewed. Okay. Never saw it. but I That was real good. Didn't. Sorry. Sorry. Okay. Just saw it. I got excited. <laughs> the Russell Brand podcast had Matthew McConaughey on. And Matthew McConaughey described himself as aggressively centrist. So he's doing a book promotional tour. Aggressively centrist. And he went on to decry the, quote, far left Hollywood political types. He said this. There are a lot of people on that illiberal left that absolutely condescend, patronize, and are arrogant towards that other 50 percent. 
Uh, Brand brought up politics when asking about societal condemnation and criticism of ordinary working purse people. Uh, and so McConaughey there kind of went off on, he said, many people, I'm sure you saw it in our industry. When Trump was voted for four years ago, they were in denial that it was real. Some of them were in absolute denial. On the other hand, McConaughey pointed out that many on the right do not believe President-elect Joe Biden. He says it looks like Biden's our guy. Now they've got the right that's in denial because their side has fake news. And I understand they've been fed fake news. No one knows what to believe, right? So they're putting down their last bastion of defense. And McConaughey continued to advocate finding the middle of the road approach. He says, uh, since the other two sides of the political aisle are so far apart, he says the left will have to understand the science of meet you in the middle. So he's advocating this meet you in the middle. We've got to find some centrism. Some, we've got to work across the aisle. He kind of rips the left, the, the far left and the far right in this interview. So you might be going, well, why are we talking about this? Uh, Matthew McConaughey was uh, he was trending on Twitter this morning for this, particularly because people particularly from the left, uh, but but on both sides were killing him for this, saying that this is inappropriate. This is blah, blah, blah. And I read it going, I kind of agree with what Matthew McConaughey is saying. Like, we've got to die. We got to try to get more to some middle ground. And and I'm guessing the answer to this is I shouldn't be surprised that there was this backlash. But Ian, when you hear that he was trending on Twitter and when I went and watched, I went and clicked on it to see why was he trending? uh, It was ugly. It was just ugly. Does that surprise you or is that like, nope, that's just kind of the divided culture that we live in right now? Why? Yeah. Why would that surprise me? A celebrity speaks out on anything political. Of course, of course, he's going to get killed. That to me is the least surprising thing I've read all day. (laughs) It surprised me only because I, 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 maybe it shouldn't surprise me because a lot of people were commenting the headlines, right? Uh, McConaughey takes issue with the far, with the left, you know, so they start painting him as a Trump guy or vice versa. But uh, but just as you read this, this call to something more down the middle, uh, I kind of resonate with a little bit at the moment and, and kind of have hope that maybe we could get there. Um, but people, man, they were uh, they were like uh, a lot of the headlines I saw were uh, Matthew McConaughey comes out as a far right uh, guy. And it was just really weird uh, as a, we haven't had this conversation in a while. We did a lot around the election as this election still uh, isn't over. I know it's over, but not over. Just the craziness of it uh, and the election going down in Georgia and stuff. Do you have less hope or, uh, yeah, do you have any less hope that we can find some sort of middle ground as a culture? Do you think we're just going to stay this fractured or do you think what McConaughey is talking about here, that there's any hope in the future for it? Well, Brian, uh, put just, on your political hat. I, I would rather not. I'm actually, I don't think I'm going to. I, um, to kind of not answer your question, my my hope isn't really in in any of that. Yeah. Um, it does. I mean, not to tie in social dilemma again, but there seems to be pretty widespread speculation that it's not just that our politics themselves are more polarized. It's that so much of what makes up our daily lives are are programmed and designed intentionally to divide us. To keep us uh, isolated, not physically, but ideologically, to keep us convinced uh, that an opposing opinion is an evil one, to make us suspicious of the other. I think all of uh, all of that 
is intrinsic. We're all capable of that in general, but it feels like so much of what has become a regular part of, of our lives, i.e. technology, social media, things like that, are perpetuating that. So it's, I don't I don't know that these things are are neutral in this, and we just happen to be highlighting this really troubling divide that's always been there. I think it's perpetuating it. I think it's monetized to do so, to be honest. And yeah. I think that's part of what I find um, a little, what's the word? Pessimistic, I guess, about some of that. I'm hopeful, but I, yeah, I don't, I don't know at times that I'm always optimistic. I think that yeah. there, there may need to be some sort of, rock bottom that we collectively like as a, as a people experience for us to kind of wake up and go, okay, yeah, this is, this is not a way to live, but yeah, I'm not surprised by it. it is discouraging. And I, I am, I am hopeful. I'll say that. I unfortunately, not the hopeful part, but your assessment of it, I, I unfortunately think you're right. And and I keep reading stuff like this and just wishing that there was, you know, that, that we saw, Hey, there is a light where, where it looks like more and more people are wanting to reach across. I, I find only, Solace in the fact like when we have people on and we're talking off air, people are always like, yeah, I really appreciate that you guys are trying to, you know, have mm. this conversation. And I at least find solace in that. But I, I actually think that you're right about that. Well, mm. coming up next, uh, we're going to close the show by asking from Bible Gateway uh, or no, from you version. What was the most read v- Bible verse in 2020? We're going to end the show with that next year on the Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us on this Monday afternoon. Uh, At Christianity Day, they do this in December every year. In fact, if you click on this article, you can see the one from 2019, 2018, 2017. uh, Asking this, what is the most read Bible verse of the year? So uh, YouVersion Bible app looks at where the increases are. Uh, So in 2018, it was don't, don't be discouraged. Uh, 2019, it was do not worry. Uh, but 2020 to, had a different one. Why don't you, this is from Kate Shellnut, who has been on the show multiple times. Uh, 2020's most read Bible verse. Why don't you get us into it, Ian? Yeah, apparently 2020's most read Bible verse is 2 Kings 4, 38 to 41, which reads, you man of this. God, there's death in the pot. You do this. <laughs> is that not the article? Oh, I clicked on something different. My bad. So that's thanks just, for joining us today. <laughs> that's just my favorite verse of all time. And the one that I've written. Did you say you used to cards. put that in people? Yeah, you used to put in people's cards. <laughs> yeah, but just the reference, though, not the actual text, just the reference to see if people actually would look it up, which either they're not looking it up at all or there's a couple of dozen people that just think I'm insane, um, which I'm fine with either, to be honest. Uh, here's what it says. During the hardest moments of a particularly difficult year, Bible searches soared online and a record number of people turned to scripture for passages addressing fear, healing, and justice. The popular version Bible app saw searches increase by 80% in 2020, totaling nearly, get this, 600 million worldwide. That's wild. Unbelievable. Isaiah 41.10 ranked as the most searched, read, and bookmarked verse on the app. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. And I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Through every hardship, people continue to seek God and turn to the Bible for strength, peace, and hope, said Version's founder, Bobby. Oh, I always forget how to say his last name. Grunewald? I think that's it. Bobby I think that's it. Grunewald. While 2020 is a year so many say they'd like to forget, we see it as a year to remember how God used the Bible app to help so many people who are searching for answers. Bible searches spiked corresponding to major events with fear becoming the app's top search 
in the first few months of the year, justice in the spring and healing trending throughout the year. Mm. The Bible Gateway site reported similar search trends, pandemic related versus about God taking away sickness, got around 90 times more queries than average when U.S. COVID-19 lockdowns began in March. Interesting. The site also saw queries related to racism, justice, and oppression spike to 100 times the average in the week following George Floyd's death and versus related to government authority up at least 50 times the average on Election Day. I'll stop there. It is fascinating to me because this is the kind of data that wouldn't have even existed 50 years ago or really 30 years ago for that matter. Right? That's boggling to me, one, that we have a Bible app you know, is receiving that much traction, but two that we can track not only like what terms or words are being searched uh, when, but also where, like what parts of the country or what parts of the world are most prone to be asking or searching versus or questions about this versus that. I find all this really fascinating. And I think as pastors um, additionally interesting because it kind of gives us a a glimpse into what people are searching for as it mm-hmm. pertains to their relationship with God or spirituality or Christianity or any of That's that. Right. So I, I, yeah, I find this article really interesting. I do too. Do you, uh, are you surprised? A, are you surprised that fear was such a high one in a oh. year of a pandemic and social unrest and other things? Uh, and two, what would you pastorally say to somebody who's driving in their car right now going, yeah, I am racked with fear right now. This whole year has just thrown me and I'm, I'm like just crippled by fear right now. Well, yeah, to your first question, I'm I'm not surprised. And there's, you know, fortunately, a lot of passages in Scripture that talk about fear. That would maybe be the beginning to my second answer to your question. The fact that the Bible, I mean, some have asserted, I think Rick Warren was probably the first to popularize it, that there are 365 fear knots in the Bible, one for every day of the year. And for something to show up that many times in Scripture is probably at the very least an indication to us that there's a... That's a that's just a human struggle, and God knew it then, knows it now, and people then struggled with it, and people now struggle with it. So I think, at the very least, you know, and I, I think Bethany was saying that you know beautifully in the in the first hour. Just know that you're not alone. Like I think one of the yeah. things that can be so crippling about fear is the the sense that you're the only one who feels that way, or you're the only one who feels it that intensely. I think that's really important. Um, two, I also think give yourself some grace. I would maybe say I I get really frustrated when I hear people and often well-intending people that will say things like, Oh, if you're experiencing fear or anxiety of any kind, it's because you haven't prayed hard enough or you don't have enough faith or you're just not a mature enough Christian. Like I don't, there are some Titans of the faith in the Bible that seem pretty freaked out. Like I don't don't know that like depth of faith means that we're immune to fear and anxiety of any kind. So like, yeah, give yourself some grace. Uh, It's been a really, really rough year. And I think, to try and just will fear away or to pretend that it's not there or like muster up our own strength. That's, I don't, I don't think any of that, it hasn't been helpful for me. And I think the invitation that Jesus gives over and over again is to abide, you know, to spend time with Mm -hmm. him. And I think Mm -hmm. for my solution based way of thinking about most everything in life all the time, that's a really good reminder. Like Ian wants to run right to research and problem solving and troubleshooting and, those are all good things, but like, yeah, sometimes we can miss out on just simply being with Jesus. You know, Scott Sauls was talking about that last week. And I think that's a really good reminder when we're feeling freaked out or anxious or just gripped by fear. Spending time with Jesus doesn't, you know, make those fears just magically go away. But it is for me, the only thing that I found that brings like any sense of like real peace 
or any yeah. real shalom. You know what I mean? That's and that's yeah. that's about that's about as as much as I can say to that. I think. I, do you have any ideas or thoughts? I think you you did it really well there. I think it's the fact that the Bible talks about fear so often should remind us that this world is a fearful place. Like there's things to be that that fear is a natural thing for us to feel. And and what do we do with that fear? And there's a lot of invitations. I, I think for me as a pastor, also one of the takeaways from reading this is uh, is simply this, that especially at times of stress, right? When you see uh, that graph where it's George Floyd and all happened here, pandemic, election, and, and it's spiking people's Bible searches, I think it's a reminder that people are thirsting for that foundation of scripture. Like sometimes we wonder, do our people even value the Bible? Like, right. Like do, yeah, right. Uh, do they even turn to the Bible? Are people ever reading the Bible? And, and like you said, in the world we live in now, uh, people are going uh, to scripture. We could see the statistics here and people are going to scripture at times of great unrest and at times of great fear, which I think is encouraging and uh, and something we want to encourage people for. And, and I, I like to yeah. give you this opportunity because you do it well uh, with our last minute. Someone's out there going, I don't really know how to read my Bible. I just don't know how to start. What's one thing you tell them uh, just how they can kind of start just even wading into the waters of Scripture? Well, I mean, I, I have my own suggestions, but the article does mention Version Bible app. And I normally w- wouldn't be this guy because I'm still a big believer in like reading a physical Bible for numerous reasons. But there are so many, there's so many helpful like programs and reading plans in the Uversion app. I like, I only have so much time right now. I would say, yeah, just download the app and like, you know, punch that into the search. It's really, really helpful. If you don't have time for that, I would start in Luke and read Acts. Luke and Acts uh, Mm -hmm. are sort of a little bit meant to be read together in the first place anyway. And that'll give you just a really beautiful sense of, you know, the story of Jesus and then the early church. And I think that's, for me, probably where I would recommend people start. But I, I, again, there's so many helpful resources and reading plans out there for people. You could just literally shout it into Google. I don't know where to start reading my Bible or a Bible and yeah. and there'll be resources available. Yeah, the Uversion app is an unbelievable uh, yeah. app and an invention over the last uh, yes. X number of years out of Life Church that is just uh, such an unbelievable tool. So I thought it was important to end that way. Uh, and if you're out there and you are feeling fearful, the Bible has things to say about that, but also be reminded, so are a lot of other people. You're not alone. Uh, well, that's the end of our Monday show. If you missed any of it, go ahead and get our podcast. You can find, see the interview, listen to the interview we did earlier, any of the things we've talked about. Join us again tomorrow from 4 until 6 p.m. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.